Welcome to Chapter 4. In this final chapter, Sally outlines the learnings applied from her Olympic career. Can we bounce back to your rowing career for a moment? You've spoken a lot about how you've drawn from that period of intense mental and physical training. Can we talk a little bit more about that period? You know, what it was like, highlights, and what you learnt that helped you later during your recovery from stroke? Yeah, sure. You know, after one year of learning how to row, you know, and standing on the podium of the World Junior Championships, then three years later I was at the Olympic Games. Um, And that four years, you know, was an incredible journey. Um, but when I got to those Olympic Games, it was just like I imagined it, you know, when I was in year 11, but 100 times better, you know, standing shoulder to shoulder with your teammates and and walking into the stadium, you know, I guess some of the athletes that were there were, you know, excited about the 100-piece uniform, um, you know, or the dining hall that was the size of, a, I guess, a, um, a touch footy field. It was, um, you know, awesome. There were so many great things at the Olympics. But for me, I have to say the most exciting thing were the mentors, um, we were fortunate enough to have Laurie Lawrence as our mentor. Wow. And um, I'm sure many of your listeners, listeners know Laurie Lawrence. He's a, a famous swimming coach and um, and now he's been with the Olympic team for the last eight Olympic Games. Um, and he's he's always on the team simply for his larrikin humour, his poetry, um, and he's known to plot excursions uh, for Olympic athletes. And when I say plot excursions, um, it was uh, the year 2000. Um, and Kathy Freeman was due to race her 400. And as you could imagine, the whole Olympic team was desperate to see her race. Um, and we had limited t- tickets available for the athletes. So Laurie devised an excursion to smuggle us all into the um, Olympic Stadium. Um, and that's what he did. He was very good at creating lots of opportunities so we could support our teammates. And it was a year 2000. And he said, you know, meet us in the Olympic Village and bring along your accreditation, your glue and your scissors. <laughs> Um, and he handed out a little sheet of paper that had a little AT on it with a little track and field athlete. And all we simply had to do to see Kathy that night was um, cut out the little AT symbol with the uh, track and field logo and cover it with my rowing one, um, glue it to my accreditation and um, and get into the <laughs> event that night. And his plan didn't stop there, Robbie, because he managed to get um, John Howard Prime Minister at the time, he managed to get all the medalists and get them to put their medals on um, and we created this sort of triangle as we entered the uh, stadium <laughs> that night and we had John Howard at the front, the Olympic medalists down the side and all of us non-medalists, we were sort of jammed in the middle and the whole idea was to sort of bamboozle those amazing uh, Sydney 2000 volunteers with all the glistening medals, <laughs> Susie O'Neill's smile, John Howard and his eyebrows and everything <laughs> like that and just um, bamboozle the whole scene and, cool. um, and make our way in. And we got in that night and we all saw Kathy win gold and I think that's my favourite Olympic memory, you know, to be part of a team and celebrate each other's wins. And, um, yeah, Laurie really did set the scene that night, you know, as what it is to be an Australian and to support your mates. Oh. He was great. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, that was Sydney 2000 and with two Olympic Games under my belt um, and, you know, finishing in a fourth place, I was pretty pretty adamant I needed to go to another another Games and see if I could get a medal. Um, and that left Atlanta, which was, um, sorry, Athens, which was four years later. Um, and everything um, in those four years went to plan for my rowing partner and I. We were 
um, world champions here before. Um, we um, were the favourites going into the games. Um, but just um, eight weeks before, I managed to come off my bike and fracture my rib. Um, and then eight weeks prior to that, my rowing partner, she also came off her bike. So we hadn't had a very good training stint, you know, while she was rowing a single scale. Not the best lead Yeah, up. she was rowing a single scale. I was sort of um, having to do a lot of visualisation because there's not much you can do with a, a broken rib. Um, so I would be sitting in the boat park leaning against a tree, with therabands wrapped around the tree, visualising every aspect of the rowing boat, you know, the back turn, the front turn, the the recovery, the drive, the start of the race, the finish. And she was rowing in the Glacier Lake because we're over in Switzerland um, in a single scale. So we had a a bit of a shock of preparation. Um, But the day came, you know, of the heat of the Olympic Games and we were pretty nervous um, because we were considered favourites but we'd had such a terrible um, lead-up. and we took off in the race and the heat um, was really tough conditions, very strong tailwind, um, and we crossed the line in first place and broke the re- world record. So we were pretty shocked at this stage, but we had to go with it. Wow. I know. And then um, the semifinal came along, similar story, strong tailwind, won the race, and again found ourselves in the favourite spot for the uh, the final. Um, so you can imagine at this stage we were feeling pretty nervous, you know, hoping that we'd get a tailwind. And um, I had a still had a lot of bandages around the rib just to try and keep it in place. Um, but when we got to the start line for the final, um, it was a headwind. So I knew it was going to be a longer race. It wasn't going to be a six minutes 47, you know, which was the current world record, which we, we held. Um, it was probably going to be about an eight-minute race. Mm-hmm. So we um, hopped onto that start line ready to go um, and we went out to win that medal and we led for the first 250 metres and we led for the next 500 and we led through the 1,000, which is a halfway mark. And when we got to the uh, 1750, uh, we found ourselves in third, pl- in um, second place. And as we got to the 10 strokes to go, we found ourselves in third place. And then as we crossed the finish line, we finished in fourth. Mm. So you could imagine, you know, going to Olympic Games and finishing with way too many fourths was pretty disastrous. So I feel like I finished that Olympic career with a lot of resilience and I just couldn't wait to get on that plane and get home. <laughs> mm. Well, look, yeah. uh, I, this probably isn't much consolation, but still the fact you're a world champion and a world record holder, it still sounds just so impressive. It just sort of overshadows the the lack of gold medal, I think. Yeah. I guess when you're in it, you don't realise that, do you? And it's taken me a long time to feel proud of that world record. Um yeah, but I look back now and I can see, you know, all the lessons that were learned in that period of time because, you know, I do look back and I see that that lesson that obstacles become opportunities. You know, a broken rib um, actually gave Amber, or my rowing partner, some really good skills in the single scale to balance in those tricky conditions that we faced. Yeah. And it also gave me some really good core stability um, to be able to balance in the conditions that day. And I still believe the only way we got the world record and won that heat and semi because we had the most amazing, you know, balance from mm. all of our 16 weeks of single sculling and, and really random preparation. Due so, to that adversity. you know, yeah, yeah, that lesson of obstacles or opportunities really proved itself in, in getting us that world record. Nice. Um, and that record was only broken um, just recently in Tokyo. So it stood for 17 years, which was, wow. which was really cool. Yeah, that, that Olympic record. Very, very cool. Would, yeah, yeah. What would you say? And this might you might have just told the story, but what would be what would you consider the highlight of your professional career? 
Um, I was actually asked this question the other day and the highlight was actually getting selected into a talent identification program. I, I tell you what, you know, to ha- be tapped on the shoulder and be told you could be an Olympic champion at a sport you know nothing about, <laughs> I'll never forget. I'll never forget what, how I felt, you know, and I think about that now as a teacher and adult. You know, if we can tap kids on the shoulder that we do see potential in and, and give them the confidence to step outside their comfort zone and rise above, you know, any expectations, um, I really believe, you know, that can change people's lives. So that would probably be the highlight of my career, even oh, though it isn't that. a very exciting thing. Yeah. Um, obviously, no, good. breaking a world record was exciting, um, you know, but the silver lining, I guess, was that um, it was the lesson of that an obstacle became an opportunity. You know, a most terrible preparation in the lead-up to the Olympic Games ended up being an incredible opportunity to, to break a world record. Yes. And then keep an Olympic record for 17 years. That was a pretty special thing to do too. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And can you describe to me any other aspects of your training or learnings from that period which became really helpful later? Yeah, I, I think the first lesson, um, you know, we were taught habits, you know, routine and habits and that habits will determine your future. And I can remember, you know, sitting down with my coach and really talking a lot about the compound effect of habits you know, and that we are faced with thousands of choices per day. Um, And it's often those mindless choices, you know, for example, how you spend your morning, who you talk to, how you talk to yourself, how much sleep you get, what you read, what you eat, all those tiny little choices um, add up and compound and change the trajectory of your life. Um, And I thought that was really a really good lesson because we often think it's about what school we go to, what degree we get, how much money we earn, who we marry, um, that determine the um, trajectory but really, it's those it's those uh, tiny little, I guess, minor small choices. You know that if we can repeat them every day, they end up compounding to um, determine our future. And what did that look like in terms of when you, I guess, just fast forward to your recovery? What did that kind of look like in that setting? Yeah, in look, terms it, of habits. It's- it's exactly the same, isn't it? You know, I look back to when I was an athlete and it is about how you talk to yourself. It's about your self-talk, you know, making sure you give yourself enough sort of positive self-talk and get rid of the ne- negative self-talk. It's about how much sleep you get, you know, making sure you get your eight hours of sleep. Um, you know, when you're recovering from a brain injury, it's exactly the same mm-hmm. as the lessons that you have to apply as an elite athlete. You know, it's what you choose to eat, how much you know, you choose to drink, it's who you let into your life. You know, those sorts of choices compound over time and determine your future. And whether you're a brain injury survivor, Olympic athlete, or you're just trying to achieve well-being, I think those sorts of simple, small daily habits affect our life and um, they compound and change that trajectory. Those habits and and self-talk, I feel like that's one I continually come back to because you can kind of, a bit of negative self-talk can kind of sneak in and and even the awareness that that's happening and uh, remind yourself that you need to speak to yourself really well, yeah. I think that's crucial. Yeah, the self-talk is a big one, isn't it? You know, and who you let into your life too. You know, those sorts of things, you know, who do you expose yourself to every day? Do they make you feel good or do they make you feel, you know, doubtful, you know, where we sort of despair and compare? Um, they were really great lessons to carry f- as a junior you know, athlete into being an Olympic athlete and then obviously surviving a stroke. Um, And there are lessons that I think we can apply today as well. So, you know, at that time I noticed, you know, as my performance in the boat improved, so did my 
academics in the classroom, which was quite amazing. Um, and it really was, uh, you know, an incredible lesson to be able to transfer those sport lessons into life and vice versa. Yeah. Um, and I think any of us can take on those lessons. You know, we've all got our own story. We've all developed grit and resilience somewhere in our life. But if we can tap into that and transfer it into our next situation, I think that can help. You know, for me, and I've mentioned it before, journaling um, was a big thing, you know, setting goals um, yes, and making sure I tick those boxes every day. Um, as an athlete, that was essential. I had this um, this mindset journal, just a blank journal, and I called it the as many wins as possible journal. So the um, I called it the AWAP journal, um, A-W-A-P, the as many wins as possible journal. And every day I would just write the one percenters, you know, what did I achieve that day? What's something that went well? Um, because when you're at that elite level, you're not going to see big progressions. You're only going to get the one percenters every day. Um, and then when I was in rehab, that was also helpful because a lot of the time the focus was on the 1%, the, the tiny improvements, you know, might be moving my thumb or moving a toe or perhaps um, being able to go to the toilet by myself or dress by myself. Those very small things really had to be celebrated. So whether I was at the Olympics um, aiming for a gold medal or whether I was in uh, recovery in a stroke survivor's unit, um, it's very simple, you know, the 1% is of what counts. It's the progress, not the perfection. Um, that was a big one for me. And, you know, I'd actually remind myself all the time that it's not about perfection because that's unachievable, but that progress um, mm. and celebrating those small successes and, and do that by writing that down every day and looking back on the day and finding one thing to write about that went well. That's good. Well, look, it's nearly time to wrap up. Do you have any sort of final thoughts, comments or advice you'd like to leave for people? Um, no, I think just stick to those things that I mentioned, you know, making sure those um, daily habits are in place because it's those small, simple um, things that we do every day that compound. And secondly, I guess making sure that we see, we try and find meaning in any obstacle. That's really important. And then lastly, um, finding out that authentic you. You know, making sure you own your story, making sure you think about that wabi-sabi um, Japanese bowl and let the, uh, the the light shine through the gold um, because we all have a story to tell and, and our story is, is who we are. We need to own that story and see that as our point of difference. So they're the three messages that I, I guess I'd like to leave anyone that's struggling with a brain injury. Sally, thank you so much for your time and for your generosity of spirit and for your vulnerability, you know, of sharing all of that. You know, there's some really, really good lessons in there drawn from, you know, a place that that is, I think it's really nice to see that parallel with the Olympics and, you know, it can be quite inspiring for those who are going through this and particularly when you're saying, oh, you know, the Olympics were hard but recovering from strokes, yeah. it's harder. And, and, you know, it's nice for, for that, I suppose, for people to, to hear that and to realise that, yeah, it's it's not easy. And, um, and here's Sally Kelly who's, you know, world record holder, world champion, nearly gold medalist, <laughs> multi-Olympian. <laughs> Thanks, Robbie. <laughs> and she's with us. Yeah. So thank you so, so much yeah. for your time. And Thank you, Robbie. And, you know, surviving any neurological issue is difficult. And as I said, you know, for me, um, this was way harder than the three Olympics combined. So, 
you know, everyone has a story to tell and I think we need to be proud of our story and realise that um, this is what makes us who we are and we need to own our story and, and move forward as our point of difference. So thanks for your time. Hey guys, it's Robbie again. I'll have show notes on everything we talked about this episode on the podcast website. There's a link to that in the podcast description, along with a full transcript if you find that easier to follow along or to find what you need. I need to highlight that neither I nor any of the people that I've interviewed on this podcast are medical professionals. The advice and learnings which we share during our discussions are not medical advice and should be considered and reviewed in consultation with a trusted medical professional prior to being acted upon. These are our learnings from our experiences. Take what is valuable and leave the rest. Next episode, we're back to in-person interviews and we'll be speaking with Trevor Barker, a former electrician who developed chronic low back pain following a workplace injury whilst an apprentice in his 20s. Following a long, debilitating decline, His recovery when it came in his 50s was swift and he is now back to a full and active life, working in a loving relationship, happy and an incredible advocate and support for others still recovering from chronic and persistent pain. He's a passionate and creative individual and I look forward to sharing his story of recovery with you. Until then, I wish you courage and energy on your own journey forward. Thanks for listening.